You're listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Good Friday afternoon to you. Hot day sitting in today uh, for Alan Carter. Tasha Carden here. Got some company here producing today. Rebecca Coots. Rebecca's excited to weigh in. I know on a couple of stories here. So, so excited. So excited. And of course, Dusty Lellis is manning the board. And we'll kick it off now with a story that uh, just makes me scratch my head because this woman has been in trouble before for some of the stuff she's allegedly said to her staff, for things she said to parents of kids with autism, for things she said in general. Talking about Lisa McLeod, Minister of Tourism and Sport, who's now in hot water because allegedly, again, there's no recording of it, she said some really uh, untoward things to Eugene Melnick, the owner of the Ottawa Senators. Um, he was at the Rolling Stones concert, just, you know, hanging out and doing his thing the other night uh, near Barrie. And all of a sudden, he said, uh, from the corner of my eye, he saw somebody trying to bust through. And he was thinking, according to this article in the Ottawa Sun, OK, might be a crazed fan and that's fine. I've gotten used to it. And all of a sudden, it's this woman and she yells at me. Do you know who I am? Okay, you know when someone says that, there's trouble coming right away. I can't place her, Meldick goes on. So I said, I'm sorry, no. And she yells, I am your minister, and you're an effing piece of ass, and you're an effing loser. Uh, Excuse me? Melnick said he didn't recognize her. He said he wasn't very political. He recognized one of her assistants who was there, director of public affairs, Susan Trupp. And he said, he said to her, he said, uh, are you Lisa McLeod? I just met your, and you didn't even get to say, finish the sentence. And she said, F you, turned around and walked away. And when he mentioned this to Susan Trupp, he, she said, she sort of shrugged and walked away too, he says. Now, uh, it sort of makes you scratch your head because like I said, uh, Lisa McLeod's been in trouble before, but wow. If she actually did say these things, uh, that is not what you expect of a minister, even if they're at a Rolling Stones concert and had a few too many, because it sounds to me that might be the issue here. She has apologized, kind of, sort of. She put out a tweet uh, where she said, um, let me set the record straight. Okay, that's not starting very well right there. I gave Eugene Melnick some feedback at the Rolling Stones concert, and I apologized to him for being so blunt. I have serious concerns about the state of our beloved Ottawa Senators. We need to get our team back on the road to winning the Cup. Somehow I don't think that swearing at the owner of the team is going to do that, but... Apparently, maybe she did. Uh, needless to say, Melnick wasn't really impressed by this whole situation. Uh, he contacted Doug Ford. And uh, Doug Ford apparently spoke to him, too. Because Melnick then put out a response to Lisa McLeod's tweet saying, Premier Ford called me. It was the first time we've ever spoken. And I can tell you I'm very impressed by his leadership and how he addressed this with me. I'm a big fan of his following our conversation Unfortunately, Lisa McLeod hasn't followed her boss's example. Her tweet this morning takes no accountability for her actions and, in fact, tries to justify them. I'm moving on from this, walking away with a much higher opinion of the premier and a much lower opinion of our minister of sport, in brackets. Ironic. Okay. Uh, Rebecca, am I the only one here who thinks that, you know, this might be the last straw for Lisa McLeod? She's already been demoted once. What is she going to be the minister of, I wonder? Backbench, I guess. (laughs) I don't know, but I... I mean, I just think this this is it. Assuming this is true, because again, there must there were other witnesses, but assuming it's true, uh, if you were Doug Ford, would you demote her to the backbench? Oh my gosh! So yeah, so so so, so far, fast, so far, so far, McLeod. Sorry, 
<laughs> Dusty, uh, we got two votes here for going. What about you? Yeah, I'd say demote her to demote her. Yeah, yeah. People have been, well, they've been removed, I guess, for uh, situations that may also, and I suspect you, I mean, I wasn't there, I don't know, but anyone who does that probably has, I would say, be under the influence of something. Because if if she wasn't, it's almost worse, because then she really has an anger management problem. But you can think of other folks who have had issues, who've stepped away from politics uh, or removed themselves from cabinet or done other things to deal with those issues. So assuming she has some then maybe it's time for her to do the same. Or maybe Doug Ford will do the same. Who knows? Um, We're going to ask your opinions on that in the next hour, too, because I think that's a a story that will not go away today. Uh, Of course, it does take the heat off uh, Ford for a couple of other things. Um, The integrity commissioner saying he can't publicly release the outcome of of the possible appointments probe, which makes you wonder why we would have it in the first place. Um, Interim liberal leader John Fraser had asked the commissioner to review all the public appointments that were done under the government so far. And the commissioner says in a letter to Fraser, if he investigates the conduct of Dean French, he has no legal authority to release the conclusions publicly, but would only notify Premier Ford of any findings. And if the premier's office wants to let them out, then he can. Um, Yeah, that again makes you think there's no teeth there because uh, the premier's office could be asked the questions of a legislature and presumably have to respond, but there's no obligation at all to release anything. All right, over to what's happened down south in the last 24 hours because um, there were some jets screaming over the Lincoln Memorial yesterday. There goes one now. The 4th of July happened in the U.S. in a way that has really never happened uh, since 1951, actually. The last time a president took part in the uh, 4th of July celebrations was, was Eisenhower. So you have to really go back a ways. But Donald Trump took the occasion to get up there and talk and say how wonderful the U.S. is, of course, uh, turning what's usually a nonpartisan celebration into something completely different. In fact, it uh, prompted protests, too, which is something you usually don't see on the 4th of July There was a Trump blimp, the orange infant blimp, floating around as well. Um, There were people protesting. The MAGA hats crowd were heckled by other protesters, and they yelled back, snowflakes, apparently. Another guy made a robot of Trump sitting on a toilet. Um, It really got quite creative. Uh, But maybe no one was quite as creative as the president himself, who took some historical liberties. Our quest for greatness unleashed a culture of discovery that led Thomas Edison to imagine his light bulb, Alexander Graham Bell to create the telephone, the Wright brothers to look to the sky and see the next great frontier. For uh, Americans, last time I checked, Alexander Graham Bell was is Canadian. impossible. Yeah. Uh, honestly, uh, don't take him away from us, please. I know sometimes Americans do, but uh, Trump did that. And then he also went on to get a little confused as to when some events happened in history. And seized victory from Cornwallis of Yorktown. Our army manned the airport. It ran the ramparts. It took over the airports. It did everything it had to do. And at Fort McHenry, under the rocket's red glare, it had nothing but victory. And when dawn came, their star-spangled banner waved defiant. Okay, uh, defiantly, I will assert that the Revolutionary War um, happened in 1775 to 1783, and there were no airplanes flying around. No, clearly not. There were no airports. Uh, There was nothing there. 
So I don't know where Trump got that language, if he just pulled it out of the air, literally, or, you know, or if he just thinks that happened. Fake news that it didn't. Of course, um, we could have been treated to something similar to what we had here on our July 1st celebration. And to contrast with that, uh, I thought we'd play some audio from our prime minister because uh, we had Canada Day just a few days ago. And uh, he also took the stage in what was considered maybe a little partisan of a speech. Since 2015, you've created one million jobs, the majority of which are full time. As of this May, 85 long-term drinking water advisories have been lifted and 825,000 people, including almost 300,000 kids, are no longer living in poverty in Canada. Okay, is there an election coming? I smell election. That's not something you say on Canada Day either. So shame on him. Though I gotta say, at least he probably got his facts and figures right on this one. Nobody fact-checked that one for him. So uh, that's pretty much the only good thing you could say about that. But really, I think that our national holiday, any national holiday, is supposed to be a celebration of the country. It's not supposed to be partisan. It's not supposed to be turned into a rah-rah, look what we've done for you. Though do notice Trudeau used the language you, giving credit to the voters for creating those jobs, uh, clearly trying to butter them up too and say, hey, aren't you great? Vote for me. Some news from Netflix. Apparently, they are seeking to reduce the number of actors who smoke on screen. They're pledging to do that in their programs after a study's out saying that smoking on the streaming services programs is contributing to a rise in on-screen smoking generally. That's because Netflix is basically taking over, I think, most screens, uh, big and small, producing movies, producing TV. The the U.S. anti-smoking group Truth Initiative said tobacco imagery is growing on small screens, and they actually cited Stranger Things of whom the cast is mostly kids, so I don't get it. They aren't smoking on this. 182 instances of smoking in the first season, 262 in the second. Uh, Orange is the New Black had 45 tobacco depictions in its first season, 233 the following season. I guess people got more frustrated in the second season. I don't know. But um, apparently this is influencing behavior by other uh, filmmakers and movie makers and producers of content, so they want to clean up the act and have less smoking all around all right well some people are saying there's less smoking of another substance you can do these days because there's not enough pot to go around i didn't smoke pot because i was afraid there wasn't enough for everyone no seriously um there's been a complaint uh that there's not enough pot to supply the stores that the government will be allowing so we know that 50 of the stores um 50 new private cannabis store licenses have been granted and um, there's been a charge that uh, one of the reasons it's been, you know, a phased in approach uh, is because there's not enough supply from Health Canada. Attorney General Doug Downey said Ontario can't issue more licenses because there's just not enough pot to go around. Bill Blair, who's our minister of pot, our czar of pot at the federal level, uh, said no, with a notable exception of Ontario. The rest of the country has made steady progress in displacing the illicit market with licensed and regulated retail stores. While the rest of the country made progress, the Ford government made excuses. So I wondered, what's the truth? Are we living in a pot desert? Is there just not enough pot to go around? Joining us now is Jean Lapine of the Blackshire Group. Knows a thing or two about this. Hi, Jean. 
Hi, Tasha. How are you? I'm curious uh, because, you know, we've heard a number of issues with the way pot's been sold. Uh, Cannabis, you know, coming in the mail with mold on it and the sorts of problems. The stores are now set to open, but apparently there's not enough weed to go around. Uh, Who's telling the truth here? Well, I think uh, both parties, so to speak, believe they're speaking the truth. The question is, uh, none of us in the industry have enough clarity from the province of Ontario on what data they are using to make decisions. And so we've called upon them to actually publish the data that they're using to make decisions because, as you pointed out, the Minister Blair and Health Canada says there's plenty. He says there's plenty. Um, Have other provinces reported any issues with supply apart from Ontario? There's been ongoing discussions with retailers and licensed producers around logistics of getting supply to stores, but those seem to be dissipating in most provinces. And in fact, in Saskatchewan, where there is an essentially clearly private system with no warehousing being done by government, uh, the fill rates, as they call them, are at 100%. And so in other jurisdictions where the government is maybe perhaps not so involved, uh, things seem to be moving along pretty nicely. In Ontario, however, there seems to be an issue. Hmm. What other jurisdictions in Canada have the private versus the, the public system? Well, in Alberta, is is a fairly uh, private system. The government, uh, the HGLC, is, is still a player in terms of warehousing of product. But uh, our discussions with retailers in Alberta suggest that any issues that they were uh, experiencing in getting supply are dissipating. Okay. Uh, now, I'm wondering if Ontario, because we, we made a switch, there was a plan in place before to have, you know, the OCBO or whatever we were calling Ontario Cannabis Board uh, distribute pot, be the only licensed cannabis seller in the province. And that changed when the Ford government came in. They scrapped that plan. Uh, did that impact any issues in terms of supply or organization getting the product to consumers? Well, I'm sure, I'm sure that when, you know, you're, you're heading into one path and things change, and, and the people uh, were, were designing a certain system, and then that changed, that that, that creates issues internally and on how they're going to execute. But the fact is that this is now a bit long in the tooth to be kind of always looking back and, and trying to figure out what the issue is looking back when this industry needs to move forward is, um, you know... <laughs> Said a different way, Tasha, there is a big opportunity in this industry and there's a big opportunity for government to collect tax revenue because we know people are buying the product in the illicit market. And so, therefore, it's a miss for government not to get this right. And what we've been asking for is for the government just to call the industry together. This, this in, in particular, um, the OCS getting Health Canada, getting the licensed producers, getting retailers, get get us into a room, and let's talk through what the issues are, and we'll find solutions together. But what's happening is the governments are making decisions based on the data that they are seeing, and none of us can be prepared to build out this industry because we're wait, we're on the wait. Okay, observing. but is, is this different in Ontario than other provinces? Did other provinces consult more with industry, as you're putting, uh, as, you're, as you're saying? Well, the other provinces have moved forward with their models. What, what's happened in Ontario is there was a commitment to a certain model in the fall of 2018. It was going to be the most competitive private retail system in the country. 
And in December, just before the process was to open up and an open allocation of licenses was going to begin, the government changed its, its tact and instituted a lottery, which, as you know, rewards the lucky, not the prepared. They, they was, are, uh, though, saying that in this lottery, um, you can't just open a store because you feel like it. You have to be qualified, uh, so don't even bother throwing your hat in the ring is the message, unless you're able to do it. Um, yeah. Do you think that, in a way, the lottery is a fairer thing? Because a lot of people have complained that by, you know, by legalizing pot, you're actually favoring now the big corporations, big companies, the small pot guy, the local pot, mom and pot shop, so to speak, wouldn't have a chance up against the big guys. So, in fact, a lottery might be fairer because, you know, you can open up a smaller store even if you're not. It's it's a big, big company. Everyone's got an even chance. Yeah, I, I, I think there is a uh, an argument to be made that lotteries produce uh, lucky winners. But this is, this is not the question. There's, there's a difference between a lottery and pre-qualification. And we are big supporters of pre-qualification. When the government announced that in the budget in April, we applauded them for moving forward with what we thought was the smartest thing they could do at the time, which is make sure that whoever is going to put their names forward are actually qualified operators. And that includes Moz and Paws. That, that doesn't... Uh, um, you know, that doesn't limit their ability to be successful or to be successful in an open license regime. But how has it worked in where, other provinces? Where, where Let me ask you just out of curiosity. In other provinces where you've got the private sellers, I mean, what percentage of them are the small guys versus the bigger companies? Well, you can, you can look at the data in Alberta. There's lots of small guys, lots of them. So that the, the argument that small guys and ladies won't be successful in Ontario unless there's a lottery is, is uh, what's, what's a correct word? N- not correct. False news? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we know that um, eight of the 50 stores also uh, will be First Nations communities on a first-come, first-served basis. So there's not a lottery. It's just, you know, there are eight spots reserved. How, that, how is that going to play out in Ontario? Well, that, that's an interesting um that's an interesting opportunity for First Nations. Many First Nations have already been talking about um, their interest in this um, segment or in this industry. So my guess is, that, you know, they'll come forward with their their applications to the AGCO and probably in the shortest uh, time. And I think they've got a certain window to do that. So I, I think it's very it's very interesting. And, and perhaps some of them will want to partner up with retailers who have established brands. So that, that, that's a very, to me, a very interesting opportunity for, for the entire industry, and, it's, and it's, um, it's probably the right thing to do. What we don't like, and what I'll kind of bang away at one last time if I can, is the notion that lottery is the right play for this province. The right play is to return to an open allocation of licenses as promised and as promoted in the fall of 2018. That allows all industry stakeholders to get ready and to put forward their best foot. Okay. Well, uh, it doesn't sound like the government is going to be necessarily changing its mind. But we do change their minds on certain things, but we'll wait and see if that happens. Uh, in the meantime, I want to thank you so much, Jean Lapine of the Blackshire Group, for coming on and uh, clearing the air a bit here uh, about what's happening with cannabis sales in Ontario. Have a good weekend. Pleasure. Thank you, you too. Consent 
in sexual situations has been under the microscope, so to speak, uh, in greater detail ever since the advent of the Me Too movement. Um, Lack of consent in many situations has come up. Uh, People have come out with stories from their past. But we still see stories now of situations where he said one thing, she said another, and uh, lack of consent has ended up in the courts. One such case took place uh, with a man from Valleyfield, Quebec, but the sex actually took place on this side of the border in Cornwall, Ontario. A woman met this man online on Plenty of Fish in 2017, arranged to meet at her place in Cornwall for sex a few days later. Uh, prior to the meeting, the woman texted the man, uh, Mr. Rivera, to say condoms, which she used as birth control, were mandatory. And no means no. Okay, pretty black and white. She's putting it in an actual text. So there you go. He agreed to the terms, according to the court. And uh, then she reiterated the rules during their encounter. But then she says he went ahead, had sex without a condom against her wishes, insisting he was, in quotes, clean. Uh, Mr. Rivera testified the woman, who can't be named by court order, um, had agreed to go ahead without the condom as long as he didn't leave anything behind, so to speak. So the woman then said she went to the court after, told the court that she went to the hospital actually the next day after this happened to conduct tests for pregnancy, STDs, and also fill out a sexual assault kit and contacted police a few days later. Um, They gave different testimony in court. Uh, He actually sort of changed his testimony at one point, um, which I think probably affected his credibility on the issue, uh, claiming, for example, that the encounter was initiated by her without a condom Um, when she says that, no, actually it wasn't, and then he changed his mind. In any event, uh, the judge said that uh, this constituted sexual assault. The fact that he did not use the condom after agreeing to do so, there was a lack of consent when they had sex, and now he's been found guilty. So what kind of precedent does this set for other situations, and what do people need to be aware of? To join us now, Andrew Biggione. He's a criminal defense lawyer for Daniel Brown Law. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Tasha. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks. Okay, so I've linked at some of the facts here, um, and you can fill in the blanks. There's a couple of things I didn't get into much detail, but do you agree with the judge's decision in this case, and if so, why? Well, I think so, Tasha. Actually, uh, the precedent that this case followed was set by the Supreme Court in 2014, and in that decision, the court had to determine whether poking holes in a condom uh, resulted in a sexual assault and the court found that because that act of dishonesty actually created a circumstance for the woman uh, where she could become pregnant that vitiated her consent in other words it rendered her consent kind of null and void and so we were faced with a very similar circumstance in this case where you agree to wear a condom and then you don't uh, that act of fraud that not doing what you said you would do that was consent was based on results in a sexual assault. So I do agree very much with the judge's decision. And uh, yeah, I think she got it dead right. Okay. Um, It's interesting because in the situation, they had sex twice. Uh, The woman also testified that um, she was forced to have oral sex. Um, I'm wondering here, though, too, how much of this case also hinged on the lack of credibility of the accused because he changed his story um wondering so you know if if he changed his story on who initiated the encounter and that kind of thing maybe the judge just said i can't believe you on anything do you think that contributed to the verdict oh absolutely and it wasn't only that he changed his story in fact the judge actually found that on at least two occasions he'd actually lied to the police and if we're talking about 
you know, changing stories. Sometimes witnesses do that. Their recollection maybe isn't um, as crystal clear as it would have been at the time of the events, but lying to the police, especially as he did in this case, on a very material aspect of the, investi- of the allegations, is something entirely different. And so I, I think you, you are dead right that uh, at the end of the day when she's saying, uh, can this guy's evidence raise a reasonable doubt in my mind about what this woman is saying happened, she wasn't able to put any stock in it at all and essentially rejected it out of hand. So certainly didn't do himself uh, any favors in the way that he went about trying to set up his defense in this case and the way he conducted himself. So for sure he didn't give the judge, I think, much to think about at the end of the day. Yeah, and speaking of evidence too, um, she had text messages between the two as evidence as well that he had agreed to her terms before uh, they actually even met. How important was that? Well, I, th- I think it is important, right? Because it, it shows that there is a, an agreement here, a consensual an agree- agreement, and it's on that basis that they're going to have sex that won't, at the end of the day, be sexual assault. So uh, if you have evidence that the parties agree to certain terms, and then in the actual event, one of the parties breaches those terms, that's exact- exactly what the sexual assault was founded on here. So again, I think it made it very easy for the judge to to fit right within established case law here and find this to be a sexual assault. Okay, uh, she's she's lucky because uh, obviously she didn't get pregnant. I'm assuming she didn't get pregnant or get any STDs. She was tested for that the next day. Um, but had she been, um, would she have had a case then for for civil damages? You know, outside of the criminal system as well. Uh, if this ha- and and maybe she does even now. He's been convicted in the criminal court of sexual assault. But are there any further recourses she could take against this person? Well, I mean, certainly anytime you have a, a finding in a criminal context of, of wrongdoing, there's very good evidence that can be brought over into the civil context for a lawsuit. And you don't even need that finding in a criminal court. But the standard of proof in this civil context is lower than it is in the criminal context. That's why if a judge is saying in a criminal context where the standard of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt, if you take that over to the civil context where we're talking about a balance of probabilities, then certainly you have extremely compelling evidence that a wrong has been committed. So should this woman want recourse in that uh, area of law for damages, monetary, uh, punitive, the like, then I think she has a good foothold to pursue those. And and she wouldn't have needed a criminal finding, as I say, and she wouldn't need to show pregnancy or you know that she contracted a sexually transmitted infection, she could just show that you know her right to personal autonomy and privacy has been violated. Okay. I want to thank you so much for explaining this case to us and its implications. Uh, Andrew Biggioni is a criminal defense lawyer for Daniel Brown Law. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you very much, Tasha. And all this started with a hookup on Plenty of Fish. Yikes. Beware out there. Uh, It really makes you, again, this is one of those head scratchers, too. I mean, if you're going to agree to something in a text, too, don't go back on it when you're in the act because it can bite you. This case is definitely a warning on that. Uh, Sex today has become much more contractual than it was in the past. Um, Yeah, I don't know where the romance has gone. Definitely not in this situation. I mean, this guy clearly didn't keep his bargain. But in general, I think everything's become very, very cut and dry. Oh, you foul. Put it back. 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 Oh, you.
you you are home. It's the lick heard around the world. Yes, that is a, from a viral video of a woman licking the top of a container of Bluebell Creamery's ice cream in Texas and putting it back in the freezer for somebody else, presumably, to buy. Disgusting, right? Uh, well, also something that could land this woman in jail. Yes, maybe 20 years of jail for a lick of ice cream. But there's a reason for that. I'm going to explore it now with Megan Colley. She's Global Online's social guru. Megan, I love that title. I kind of made it up, but it's a great wedding. Well, and it's fitting with all the hyperbole that's on the Internet anyway. Guru is good. In this case, um, this woman posted this video online. So uh, first of all, I have to ask the question anyone would ask. What was she thinking? Yeah, so I think this was her attempt at starting one of those viral trends. Um, She was calling it the ice cream challenge. A couple other people actually did pick it up in my research. I Mm -hmm. was seeing some other videos. Those people are also getting in trouble. So for anybody listening right now, I would not recommend participating in the ice cream challenge. It's super illegal. Uh, But yeah, I think it was just, you know, an attempt at sensationalism and standing out on social media. The standing up for, for like a, a disgusting reason, um, I mean, the, the, the police have put out, they're taking this very seriously because this is a public health thing. And they're totally. saying tampering with a consumer product is a second degree felony, carries a punishment range of two to 20 years. The department's consulting with the FDA in the U.S. and federal charges may also be pending. Um, you think this is an attempt also to crack down to prevent exactly what you're saying? People copycatting this woman? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a public health concern. Um, so, you know, the blue, blue bell is the, the label of ice cream she was eating and they had to come out with this big statement explaining how they package their ice cream, right. how they pulled a bunch from that specific store in the hopes that in case anybody else participated or in case she licked any of the other containers that those were pulled to. Uh, but yeah, it like, do not do this. <laughs> no. Do, and, and this is the thing too, is that it's obviously a loss for the company. This is the kind of publicity you don't want online or anywhere else. Um, you know, I was talking before the break to a lawyer about another case. I said, well, you know, could this woman sue, in that case, a guy who assaulted her for civil damages? Here I'm wondering, if, if you were the ice cream company, would you want to sue this woman for what she's done? I really don't know. that. Uh, there's no precedent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what I do know is we need to have a serious conversation about what it means to go viral and the, the lengths to which people online are going to stand out. Right. In, in this mass of online content, you know? Well, the, the irony is a lot of the online content and the viral stuff so far, and I'm thinking, you know, the Kiki Challenge, for example, people riding in a car without looking where they're driving. Yep. This kind of thing, uh, it puts the person in danger who's doing the stunt. In this case, though, she's not in danger. The rest of us are. Why would the, you think people are flipping to stuff that's just gross or, or hurting other people? Yeah, I think as uh, more and more content hits the web, you know, every minute there are millions of videos being uploaded around the world. I think it's people just really desperately wanting to stand out. But I also think there's this aspect of um, influencers who want to set their content apart from the rest, who actually want to identify themselves as being influential on Mm. the internet culture, uh, which can be super problematic because again, yeah, as you say, it's not, they're not concerned about other people's safety. They're not. Okay. Speaking of influencers, I got to ask the question. The worst period, generation, period, ever, period. I think it is, because speaking of influencers, there's another case involving ice cream, ironically, uh, just happens to be that way, of 
influencers, so-called influencers. And for those of you who've been living under a rock, uh, Megan, describe what a social influencer is. So an influencer is somebody who uses their social media following as a way to leverage business deals and partnerships with brands. So that's a very fancy way of saying someone who spends all their day on Instagram uh, posting about stuff. Exactly. So they'll say, oh, I have 500,000 followers. Pay me a thousand bucks a post and I'll say amazing things about your brand or your product. Why would anyone take that seriously if they know they're being paid? I mean, why do their followers, why would they even pay attention? So I think it's tricky. Every social media platform has a different uh, set of community guidelines. Some of them don't require users to actually uh, disclose that it's an ad. That's what it is. It's an ad. It's Mm -hmm. a person being paid to advertise a product. Some of them don't require that disclosure. Um, And I think it's also a lack of um, knowledge on the consumer side or on the user side. So somebody might really admire a follower and respect their opinion and also not totally understand how to figure out if it's an ad or not the the clues to look for uh and they think you know it's just authentic when it when it isn't what are some of those clues out of curiosity yeah so um typically so on instagram that's a big one uh they are required technically by the community guidelines to include hashtags like ad to even include a little uh paid sponsorship line at the top so it's common with brands you'll see paid sponsorship with XYZ, uh, that should show up underneath their their handle. Um, if it doesn't, though, you can look for other things like that's why I love lines like that's why I love this product or okay. uh, played p- placed products within images uh, where they're sort of showcasing that product and it doesn't really seem to match with the flow of their feed. Uh, that, <laughs> might, that might give it away too. Okay. Well, speaking of flows of their feeds, um, influencers approached a guy uh, in LA. He and his wife, Joe Nietzsche, have a Mr. Softy ice cream truck business. And they've mm-hmm. had it since 2014. He said there was a gap in the market because everyone in LA is healthy and drinking green smoothies. And he and his wife said, you know what? You know, people who aren't on that bandwagon, let's bring back these ice cream trucks. And literally the ice cream trucks, looking at a picture here, these are the old style trucks from the 60s. I don't know where they got them. Maybe from a movie set? Who knows? But they're Mr. Softy ice cream trucks and they serve up the traditional soft serve. And they've been profiled um, all over the place. He's an aspiring actor, but this business seems to be taking off better than his career. Um, But uh, he's noticed lately that influencers or people who call themselves influencers will go up to him and say, uh, in exchange for a free cone, a post about you, man, Um, four bucks for a cone. It is pretty expensive for soft serve, but whatever. He got so sick of this that he put up a sign that said, influencers pay double. And the irony here is that he got so much business because that sign, of course, went viral um, that he's actually, I think he doubled his sales. But this begs the question, um, do you think people are getting sick of influencers, Megan? Is this tide turning? The reaction to this seems to suggest people really don't like this idea. Well, I think people don't like being lied to. Mm. And I think a lot of what influencers are doing is, you know, the the ice cream example is perfect because what they're saying is not, I love your ice cream. Let me promote it to my followers. They're saying, I've never had your ice cream before and I don't really want to pay the $4 or whatever it is for a cone. (laughs) So you give it to me for free and then I'll post. So it's not an authentic exchange. It's different if, you know, I have a very carefully curated feed uh, of influencers, quote unquote, that I respect and admire because I think they're actually authentic in the partnerships that they they promote. Um, and, it, you know, I I think that's really important. I think people are looking for that authenticity now. Um, what and- makes someone authentic? That's a good question because I honestly, I don't 
have any I don't care what mm-hmm. people say about stuff on I get promoted posts and whatever. What makes someone authentic enough for you uh, to include in that list? You know, a big thing for me right now is people who actively talk about what a sham social media can be. <laughs> so you know, it's reverse I, psychology in yeah, a way. I love that. I love that conversation of like, you know, here's what my photo could have looked like, but here's the one I'm actually uploading because I don't have perfect skin today or this bathing suit doesn't fit in all the right places like the models of the brand, you know, but I still love this product. I love this, this company. And here's why I really like that sort of, um, approaching it head on and saying, you know, I normally wouldn't do this. And if I didn't like this product, I would tell you, I didn't like it, but I'm here because it really matters to me. And I think they're doing something cool. Okay. And that then, um, leads me to another question because influencers I've read, you have to have at least 30,000 followers. According, I think it was actually a court decision, lots of legal stuff today, that said a person would be considered an influencer if they had 30,000 followers. But I'm wondering if as an influencer, if you have too many followers, does that take away your authenticity or is it the smaller ones who actually are like, you know, appealing to people like you. This is interesting. Um, I think it depends on the context you're speaking about. Like, you know, courts obviously... They needed to have a definition because now influencers are going into court. They're being sued. It's, yeah, it's a real thing. Um, for me, the, the, the number count doesn't matter to me. Uh, what matters to me is the content that they're feeding me. Um, a, a perfect example that I actually brought with me today is the Bird's Papaya. She's an influencer out of Guelph, actually. She's a mom. Uh, she's super cool. She... Found her sort of rise to fame because she was doing all of these like debunking photos on Instagram about weight loss, her weight loss journey, her weight journey in general, um, and you know debunking pictures about cellulite and things like that. She's very, she's very forthcoming. Does she posts pictures of her own cellulite. She does all the time. She's okay. very forthcoming about like her belly, and Let's she posts see. slow mo videos of her like you know on uh, next to the pool with her kids, sort of just living life. And for me, I actually don't even know what number followers she has, how many followers she has. What matters to me is that she is, she strikes me as authentic. Uh-huh. As a mom who would love to spend more time by the pool with her kids and has cellulite, I find it fascinating that anyone would care what this woman thinks at all. I, I, it, it, is it because she doesn't live your life because you're you're not in her space that you find it interesting? Because I don't know, I don't, I don't yeah. have even time. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's fair. I don't have any kids, so I think I have a little bit more time to indulge go. in the, this lifestyle. But um, no, you know, I think social media, this is, this is the cool part of social media. It connects you to a larger community. It connects you to people who you're like, you're, you're like-minded. Um, I just think she's really cool. And, you know, I don't, I would never take her opinions at face value. Like I, I'm not, I'm not living by the Bible of this influencer. I'm fact checking everything she says. I mean, I'm a journalist, so that's kind of in my Your nature, job, but yeah. I do think that's the responsibility of the consumer and the user on social media to, to not take anything at face value. And, you know, you can have people you admire, but I would still do your research, read reviews and things like that before you buy anything. Very good advice. And also don't listen to someone who's just pitching for a free ice cream cone. Okay. I want to thank you so much. Megan Cauley is Global Online's resident social guru. Thanks for your time, Megan. That is all the time we have this hour. Uh, I want to thank Rebecca Coots for producing. Dusty Lalas on the board. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.